Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure, Take with, the adventure us. With, us. with us. With us. With us. With us. With us. And welcome back, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Parallax Channel. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I want to thank you for listening and to ask you to go over to wherever you are on your podcast platform and give us a lovely like or rating and uh, obviously a nice rating and leave a nice comment if uh, you like what you're listening to. So today we are back with the Classical Studies 101, we are going to be looking at the Iliad, Chapter 11. We're making our way through it. We're going through this great epic. And guiding us all the way through is the one, the only, Dr. Gary Stickle. Welcome, Gary. Hi. What a, that adoring crowd, that adoring uh, flock of fans. I, I wish, I wish my most of my colleagues would behave that way with me, but uh, they don't. Okay, we'll get, we'll get them to come around. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. So last we left off, we had kind of the espionage segment. It was uh, some stories of the Greeks trying to find out what was going on with the Trojans. The Trojans trying to find out what's going on with the Greeks. Odysseus uh, capturing, I think it was Odysseus and Diomedes capturing. Uh, a Trojan and interrogating him. Um, so it is. Uh, it, it was a really interesting, really, really interesting episode. So what are we going to hear about in Chapter 11, Gary? Uh, just before I start, I just want to mention this dramatic day today because the um, ancient Greeks and Romans believed that um, Mount Etna was the home of... Uh, what the Romans called Vulcan, you know the the uh, the, the, the the god, god of the, uh, the blacksmith god, the god the of blacksmith god yeah. mm -hmm. made the armor and the artworks and jewelry and, and palaces for the goddesses and gods, <clears throat> and um, the uh, Greeks call him Hephaestus, mm -hmm. and so Mount Etna is erupting spectacularly, and I just saw an image. They said a thousand foot high. A column of lava shooting up out of it. No, no excuse me, not a thousand foot, a thousand meters. It's like uh, over three thousand feet high. That's incredible. If it is a thousand meters, it's over three thousand feet high. Right, right. So, well, we have we we have. Are the gods telling us something? Is that what you're saying? Are I, you I guess message? so. It's, well, it's be, in, be in your best behavior because you don't want to be thrown into that volcano. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic, you know. Well, it is amazing. It is amazing that we're still, <laughs> what's great, you know, when we talk about this is that we are talking about these these events from 3,000 years ago that were written 2,500, well, nearly 3,000 years ago where they were written, uh, 3,200 years ago or so that they would have taken place. And yet right now in today's world, we still live among their echoes. We still walk among the their legends. So it's great that we're still connected with that time. At least I think that. What about you, Gary? Yeah, well, um, 
to get to your question, uh, chapter 11, and I keep having these little, uh, starting off with these synopses. Sure. By the Harvard uh, 1883 edition by Andrew Lang, Walter Leaf, and Ernest Myers, which is a good translation. It's, you know, whatever. You can argue it's dated, but I'd like some of the, the dated language uh, works for me because Homer is, is ancient. So the little synopsis of chapter 11 is, quote, despite the glorious deeds of Agamemnon, the Trojans press hard on the Achaeans, meaning the Greeks, and the beginning of evil comes on Patroclus. Now, Patroclus is the great warrior and probably lover of Achilles, the greatest warrior of the Greeks. And um, mm-hmm. so the chapter is mainly full of war. Okay. And so I'm going to quote extensively from it because it uh, from a, the uh, edition by uh, Robert Fagels. It's a, okay. And um, which isn't perfect, but it's it, it's pretty well done in my in my book. So let me ask you though. So now we're we've just had a prior to this, the Greeks were trying to get. Um, Achilles to come back and fight, come back and join the team. And kind of like yes. we talked about, like a diva star. Um, that didn't work. They sent an embassy over to him that he was not having it. Contract negotiations stalled, as they'd say in contemporary sports terms. Right. So he's still a holdout from training camp, or in this case, war camp. And they, in chat, that was chapter nine, I believe, and then chapter 10. They were trying to figure out what were they going to do, how are we going to handle this, and they sent some spies out to figure out what was going on. So now we get to chapter 11, and you're saying there's going to be warfare and Patroclus, or am I pronouncing right? Patroclus or Patroclus? How's it pronounced? Well, I I, I say Patroclus, but I don't know. I'm I'm not an expert in the, okay and uh, Homer's pronunciation, to be honest. Potatoes, potatoes. Is that the cold porter? Um, so. We now have that. So it sounds like we're being set up for something to happen because obviously, as you alluded to, Achilles and Patrick Close are at the very least pretty close. So we are going to have... They're very close. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. I'm being sort of facetious, but, uh, you know, it's pretty clear what their their relationship is. Um, So I think the world of each other, you know, is that kind of thing. So Yeah, yeah, so so to speak. Uh, But anyhow, Uh uh, Fagel's has titles for the chapters and he calls this Agamemnon's day of glory. And uh, for Greeks, glory meant uh, your ability to kill people, you know, which, you know, I mean, in the Iliad, you know. That's my sword sound of uh, people. Yeah, there you go. Yes, exactly. It's grim to us, but it's, it's, uh, what the epic is about. So I'm going to quote extensively from it. And it starts off like this. Now Dawn, which is a goddess, by the way. Now Dawn rose up from her bed by her lordly mate, Tithonus. She bringing light to immortal gods and mortal men. But Zeus, you know, the king of the gods, flung Strife, another god named Strife, if you can believe it, on uh on the Greeks' fast ships, the brutal goddess flaring her storm shield, his monstrous sign of war in both her fists. She stood on Odysseus' huge black uh, hull of his ship, 
moored midline so a shell could reach both wings, meaning uh, of the Greek army. Up, up shore to Telamonian Ajax's camp and down to Achilles at the other end. Um, there, Strife took her stand, raising her high-pitched cry, great and terrible, lashing the fighting fury of each Greek's heart. No stopping them now, mad for war and struggle. Now suddenly battle thrilled them more than the journey home, more than sailing their hollow ships for their dear native land. <clears throat> then it goes into how Agamemnon led it, led him in battle. So that's just let's stop for that for a second. That's a beautiful um, description. That's a beautiful way of describing Dawn, essentially. And Dawn, for those listeners, is also our co-host on Make Matriarchy Great Again. She'll be happy to hear the goddess illusion there. Um, so Dawn awakens, and then Zeus sends Strife out. It's just I have this image. I just picture her getting out of bed, and then yeah. Strife comes. You know, flying into the fray. So beautifully, beautifully written. Just again, another example of Homer's gift as an artist, as a writer, as a creator. Yeah, his descriptions are, are uh, mm. really uh, enthralling to me. So it goes on. Agamemnon cried out, calling to his men of, men of arms, harnessing up in gleaming bronze himself. Now what follows is... Um, the Greeks had a term for it, but I, I can't remember what, it, what the term is. Maybe you can. But it was a specific term, meaning the process of putting on all your armor. And, and they referred to the armor collectively as a panoply, which is a Greek term. I remember you had mentioned this. You, you know, pan means this. all, and plea, mm, uh, rusty right. means, means the armor. And so here's a description of how he puts on his armor. First, he wrapped his legs with well-made greaves. These are metal things that protect your uh, shins. Fastened behind the heels with silver ankle clasps. Next, he strapped the, the breastplate around his chest. The rousing rumor of war had carried far from Cyprus. How the Greek ships were launching war on Troy. So he gave the king, meaning uh, this guy Cinderus, gave Agamemnon, uh, his armor to please the spirit. Magnificent. Ten bands of blue enamel spanned it, meaning the breastplate. And here you have embedded the sacred symbolic number system that I keep referring to that I think I discovered. You pointed because that out. Because he says yes. ten bands of gold. Well, you know, they, they uh, according to Homer, they fought for ten years. The battle of Troy lasted ten years. And Odysseus voyage home after the war lasted for 10 years. So 10 is a sacred number. So 10 bands of blue enamel on it. And then here is space by 12 of gold. So number 12 is, is one of, is the main sacred number, actually. And 20 of beaten 10. So in other words, you can have doubles of 10 or doubles of 12 and so on. Dark blue surface writhed around the throat. Three on each side, three is a sacred number, shimmering bright as rainbows, arched by the clouds by uh, Cronus's son Zeus, assigned to mortal men. Then over his shoulder, Agamemnon slung his sword, golden studs at the hilt, blade burnished bright, and the scabbard sheathed in silver swung on golden straps. He grasped a well-wrought shield to encase his body, 
Forge for Rushing Forays, beautiful, blazoned work. Circling its center, 10 strong rings of bronze. Again, Homer keeps emphasizing bronze. It's Bronze Age. With 20 discs of uh, glittering tin set in at the heart of the boss, a boss is a, a, a rounded, you know, like a, a half globe that projects out from the shield. Mm-hmm. Uh, a boss bulging blue steel, and there inscribed on it is the Gorgon's Grim Mass. The Gorgon was, uh, you know, one of the uh, monstrous women, you know. And uh, like, you know, Medusa, who could turn you turn men into stone with her fierce look, you know. Right. She would. She was a, Medusa was a Gorgon. That she was plot, one of the, the three, category she belongs to. One of the Got three it. Gorgons, again, mm-hmm. the number three, you know. And around her, you know, on the shield strode the shapes of rout and fear, utter gods. The shield belt glinted silver and rippled on it, ran a dark blue serpent, two heads calling around the third, reared from single neck and twisting left to right. And over his broad brow, Agamemnon set his helmet. Now, this is very interesting because these helmets are not like the classical Greek helmets, you think, with a a brush-like crest that goes all the way from the front down to hang down the back. Yeah, that's you know sort I mean? of the, the 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 stereotypical ancient world helmet that we picture, right? Yeah, the, the, the Bronze Age helmets, this is describing a helmet like the one that's depicted on the vase that came from uh, Mycenae, which is on display at the National Museum, mm-hmm. which shows warriors with helmets just like I'm about to describe. Mm-hmm. Agamemnon said his helmet fronted with four knobs, meaning a bronze, and forked with twin horns. These, you know, the ancient uh, Vikings didn't have horned helmets, but the uh, Bronze Age warriors from Greece did. That's so interesting. So the, so the Vikings did not have the helmet. They that did we not. See. That's like, a that's a Hollywood or whatever you know misconception. It's also the Minnesota Vikings, you know, football helmet. So, yeah. yeah. So we got so we got to go to Minnesota, Gary, but they'll take a little trip and tell them to change their their helmets. Yeah, you have this um, iconic image of Viking helmets with horns, and they didn't have horns, but the ancient Greeks did. Mm -hmm. Egmont set his helmet on, front with four knobs, forked with twin horns, and the horsehair crest atop it tossing. So it wasn't a brush-like crest. It was like a plume that came out of the center of the helmet, atop of the helmet. So a horsehair crest atop it, tossing, bristling terror. Then he picked up two rough spears, tipped in bronze, again emphasizing bronze and so on. Athena, Hera, Athena being the goddess of wisdom and defensive war, and Hera being queen of the gods, loosed a crack of thunder, exalting, that the great king of Mycenae, rich in gold, was going forth. And that's uh, Homer's epithet for Mycenae is Mycenae rich in gold. And sure enough, when, uh, you know, uh, Heinrich Schliemann, who found Troy, he also dug at Mycenae, and he found these graves with all these golden uh, objects in it. So once again, the pattern of what we read about in the ancient lore being borne out through archaeology, through science. Yeah. And so, uh, and then, um, so he tells his driver, you know, Homer keeps saying he gets on a car. By car, he means a chariot. 
And he said, so he gets on his car and uh, urges his driver, uh, you know, to drive, drive to war. So we're not talking about a Mercedes or a Bugatti. No. We're talking about a chariot. Okay. Gotcha. Right. And then get this to uh, Zeus, you know, to uh, ostensibly show his uh, assent or, you know, agreement with what's going on. Uh, it says Zeus drove a swirl of panic down, meaning the Trojan lines, and down from the vaulting skies released a shower of raining blood. For Zeus was bent on hurling down to the house of death many sturdy fighters. How about that? A shower of blood. That's an incredible. I mean, these descriptions are are really. Amazing. But again, and now we know we are getting them in translation. Of course, the translations, as you pointed out, that, that you're picking are the ones that are either considered the most faithful, well, certainly considered the most faithful, and some of the best works. So we know that this is essentially what Homer's language was like. And that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, uh, this is truly the stuff of epics. And uh, like we talked about before, We'd like to develop a mini series called Rage of the Gods that would mm-hmm. show <clears throat> multi-year TV series to replace Game of Thrones that would start off with the Iliad for many years and then go to Odysseus with his voyage home and all these gods and monsters he had to fight to get home for many for ten years. And uh, and when you have stuff like showing Zeus and the heavens raining down blood, I mean nothing like that was shown in Game of Thrones, you know? When you start with Homer as source material, it's hard to go wrong. Exactly. So here, here he goes on. He urged on Trojan. Uh, he, excuse me, Trojans on the other side of the plain, meaning Scamanders. The Scamander River runs across this plain in front of Troy. The Trojans on the other side of the plain's high ground formed all around tall Hector, staunch Polydamus, Aeneas, you know, that Virgil wrote about in the Aeneid, you know, Prince Aeneas, loved by the Trojans like a god, and Antenor's sons, Polybius, Prince Agenor, and Acamas. Three men in their prime like gods. Again, the number three, huh? Hector bore his round shield to the forefront, blazing out like the dog star, meaning Sirius. Mm-hmm. So Homer compares them to a star, which I think is fantastic. Uh, through the clouds, all withering fire, then plunging back to the cloud rack, massed and dark. So Hector raged on, now flaring to the, along the front, shouting his orders to his men, armed in bronze, a flash like lightning, flung by Father Zeus with the battle shield of thunder. And the men, like gangs of reapers, slicing down the reaping rows of wheat or barley. So the Achaeans and Trojans closed and slashed. And so, uh, and it goes on, uh, attacking each other like wolves with strife, with wild groans, exulting to see them, glaring down at the melee, strife alone of the immortals hovering above the fighters. The other gods kept clear. They were high on rugged ridged Olympus, where, where blaming Zeus and his storming dark clouds because the fodder decreed to hand the Trojans glory. 
So let's so hold. Zeus, let's let's hold. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, please. Well, I'm almost done with this passage. He says, "So Zeus sat aloof, glorying in his power, gazing out over the city walls of Troy and the warships of the Greeks, the flash of bronze, fighters killing, fighters being killed." Wow. Oh, that's just simply amazing writing. I, I when again, I'm always struck by the way the gods are described in this epic as spectators both as agents of change, because Zeus is obviously putting his thumb on the scale on behalf of the Trojans, right? Yeah. Um, and then also, but the, they're constantly described as sitting, seated, watching the battle, right? Watching as if they're in the stands, as if they are. Yeah, as, as, as if they're in the theater watching, you know, the happenings in the theater. Now, Gary, what do you know about that? Because I've read that in, for example, late 18th and the 19th century, people would go out and picnic near battlefields. You know, there would be people, I think I've, I've heard of it happening during the Civil War, uh, and then that was one of the wars that changed it as war became that, the carnage was that clear and the suffering and the danger was brought closer to the, the, the non-combatants. That started to change and also as awareness of the fact that you're sitting there watching men die. But did people in the ancient world watch battles unfold? Did they do that the same way I'd read about I, I, them doing? Uh, uh, well, the ancient Romans did. I mean, they, they they watched gladiators fight each other to the death, you know, in their arenas. Well, in, in the arenas, but I'm thinking in actual battles. I mean, I know they recreated battles in the arena. They would they would flood the arena to have naval battles, which is a oh, yeah. crazy just image to have in your mind. But yeah. I wonder if that's part of what Homer is recreating that, that for that reader, you know, that, that listener that, at that time might be associated you know, with watching a battle. I, I, I don't know, but uh, it's an interesting thought, you know. Hmm. So so what do you take? Are, are we, uh, well, you're not finished with the chapter. So I, I want to ask you no. some words. So it sure goes on here where Agamemnon okay. is uh, leading the battle. And so he says, in their midst sprang Agamemnon first, and he kills the fighter, Beanor, and he goes on killing uh, Oilus and so on. I mean, he it just, and with Oilus, you know, he, his spearhead rammed sharp. The rim of the bronze helmet could not hold it. Clean through the heavy metal and bone, the, burnt, the point of the spear burst, and the brains of Oilus splattered all outside inside his helmet pretty pretty grim stuff you know then he goes on and kills other people isis antiphus and so on uh two sons of king prime one a bastard one of royal blood you know um so agamemnon goes on like this mm-hmm. um, and uh he meets two other sons of king prime of troy and defeats them and, and they cry out, take us alive, Atreides, which is another name for Agamemnon. Take a ransom worth our lives. Vast treasures are piled up that we could give you, you know? And so uh, they cried to the king, for cries of mercy. And then he shouts back um, that he hated their father, King Priam. He says, for your father's outrage, meaning that he took in Helen of Troy, you know? For your father outraged, blood for blood. And so he kills both of them, you know? My, my goodness. We had something similar in the last chapter where we had Odysseus and Diomedes promising to 
let this uh, captured Trojan go free uh, if he just gave them the information, assuring him that he'll be fine. And then once he gave them the information, off with their head, you know, killed them, right? Yeah. So it, we see that the all warriors in this period, but in particular Homer, and you talk about Homer's sort of fair telling, you know, when he talks about this story, that showing that both the Greeks and the Trojans in a humane light, and there's Homer showing you just how brutal the Greeks could be. So it's not as if he's giving you only the good side of his own, you know, tribe that uh, for whom he writes, for, to whom he speaks. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's grim stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, it says Agamemnon pitched Pisander off his chariot onto the earth and plunged his spear in his chest. The man crashed on his back as Hippolytus, uh, Hippolochus uh, leapt away, but him he killed also on the ground, slicing off his arms with a sword and lopping off his head. Agamemnon charged, the rest of his troops in armor quick behind him now. Infantry killing infantry, fleeing headlong, meaning the Trojans trying to flee. Hard-pressed drivers, drivers of chariots killing drivers under the onrush, dust and whirlwinds, and so on. I mean, you know, it's pretty gripping stuff. And then it says, but Zeus drew Hector out of the range of weapons. You know, Zeus loves Hector, you know. And they go past uh, Ilias's borrow. And what's significant, uh, Ilias was a former uh, ruler of Troy. And the main name of Troy, Ilios, is from Ilus, I-L-U-S in English. And um, and then it just goes on. Agamemnon splattered with gore, his hands, invincible hands. But once he reached the Skian gates, now that's the main gates of uh, Troy with its great sacred oak, the two sides halted, waited for each other's charge. And then Zeus, the father of men and gods, descended out of the heavens, took his throne on high on the high ridge of Mount Ida. Now, apparently Ida was like a second Mount Olympus where Zeus and the gods could hold forth, you know? Their vacation home. Yes. And from it, they could see Troy. I think, I think present Mount Ida is, I think, 70 miles from Troy or something like that, you know? And then get this. He has Iris, and another goddess, who actually is more of a messenger uh, to uh, Zeus in the Iliad than Hermes, which is ostensibly the messenger of the gods. Uh, Homer has Hermes being the messenger of Zeus in the Odyssey, but in the Iliad has Iris, the goddess of the rainbow. And get this. He urged on Iris down in a rush of her golden wings. She had golden wings to bear his message. And he says, quote, away with you now, Iris, quick as the wind, speed this word to Hector. So long as he sees Agamemnon storming among the champions, mowing columns down in blood, Hector must hold back, command the rest of his men to fight the enemy, stand their headlong charge. But soon as a spear or bowshot wounds the king, and Atreides mounts his cherry once again. Then I will hand Hector the power to kill and kill till he cuts his way to the, the benched ships of the Greeks until the sun sets. So when quick Iris obeys at once and goes to Troy, and then she passes a message on to uh, Hector. So um, 
anyhow, mm-hmm. Hector has to regroup his, his troops, you know, um, at at the uh, gates of, of Troy and stuff like that. Um, so and then get this. Um, there's a guy called Koan, and uh, Agamemnon never sees him, and tense with tense with a spear. Koan slashes Agamemnon under the elbow, down the forearm. Uh, glint of metal, the, the point ripped through his flesh, and the Lord of Fighting Men Atreides shuddered. So he wounds him, and the pain, sharp pain, keeps uh, bursting in. And so finally, he springs in, onto his car, his chariot, and tells his driver to return to the, you know, the the camp of the of the Greeks. It's interesting to think about then too, because wounds in battle. I mean, we take for granted all kinds of things that you can heal, but then all sorts of things that brought you harm could bring you death. So, you know, it makes sense that he would pop on his chariot and head back to Dodge because he wants to make sure that he'd be able to fight again. Uh, when you get that kind of a wound, but it's just, I just, it's good for the modern listener to keep that in mind that we're talking about a different age. We yes. don't have these kinds of medical facilities and this medicine and all the stuff we take for granted. Okay. So and how so, do we end, how does it, how do we end this? Cause we're coming to a, uh, coming up to a, when, uh, uh, Hector, a uh, you know, rallies his troops, you know, with that signal, you know, um, and, um, Odysseus is involved a little bit and uh, so on. Um, but Odysseus is wounded too, and Agamemnon's wounded, and uh, even Diomedes is, is uh, wounded, you know, trying to uh, res- rescue Odysseus, who's surrounded by the Trojans. Mm-hmm. And then get this, <clears throat> and set to stripping his kill, uh, Paeon's son, but at once Paris, the lord of fair-haired Helen, Draw, drew his bow at rugged Captain Diomedes. And so he shoots an arrow into Diomedes' foot. And uh, and then Peristor, you know, glories in that, and Diomedes shouts that it's ridiculous. It's only his foot and everything, you know. But, uh, but it still hurts him, and he's forced to retire. You know, so Paris with his bow uh, forces, you know, the... Agamemnon, you know, and his fellow uh, Greeks to uh, retreat. And uh, so anyhow, um, and then the the chapter uh, winds up with um, uh, Achilles sending Patroclus to the uh, lodge of old King Nestor. And uh, because he finds out that Machion, who's the son of Asclepius, the god of uh, healing, you know, the god of medicine. Right. And uh, his son, Machion, is wounded as well, and Achilles is concerned about him. So he sends uh, Patroclus to the lodge of uh, Nestor, and Nestor urges uh, Patroclus to try to get Achilles to get back into the, the war, you know. And uh, and it mentions in, in that uh, sequence the Nestor's famous cup. He had a, a double-handled cup with two little doves on it. And interestingly, Agamemnon, I mean, uh, uh, you know, the, such such a 
uh, cup was found in the excavation of the Mycenae oh. that I mentioned earlier. You know, uh-huh. from what time frame? From the Bronze Age. Wow. Now that is interesting. Now that's inc- that's. So they call what, it Mithras cup, but but it, okay, it, uh, it's probably a copy of what Homer was saying or something. I, I don't know. You know. Yeah, it'd be interesting to look for us to look into but when Sleeman that found it. You know, and and uh, at 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 Mycenae. It'd be interesting um, for us to look at the dating of that cup. So well, that's something for us to look up yeah, for the really. next time. So we end with this uh, embassy to uh, from uh, Patroclus from Nestor to Achilles of saying, hey, uh, yeah. come, you know, let's ask him to come back and join the fight. As right. you know, I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the idea that you would ask someone that close to Achilles to see if he could maybe get him to come into the battle again. And we will see, I assume, in chapter 12, right? We'll find out. Well, and interestingly, chapter 12 is when the Trojans uh, really attacked the Greeks. All right. Well, stay tuned, folks, for next time for the big Trojan attack. This has been Classical Studies 101. We've been talking about Chapter 11 with Dr. Gary Stickle. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. It's always fun. And thank you all for listening. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and this is the 34 Circe Salon, the Parallax. Thank you, and we will talk to you again soon. Take care.